Sharai, the podcast, co-hosted by the Governance Program at the Aga Khan University and the International Society for Islamic Legal Studies in cooperation with the University of Bern. Welcome to a new episode of Sharai, the podcast. My name is Gianluca Parolin. And my name is Serena Tolino. In this episode, we are delighted to have as guest Evgenia Kermedi from Hajjatepe University. Welcome, Evgenia. Welcome to both of you. I'm very glad for and honored for the invitation. I hope I'm not going to bore stiff everybody. We, we are sure you will not do that, Eugenia. So uh, you are the president of the society and we would love to know something more about when did you become a member of uh, the society, how did it come and what do you like about the society? Well, uh, it's been uh, in the previous century, most probably. <laughs> in 1996 or 94 even, my supervisor was invited to this first uh, Josef Schacht conference in Leiden. And I was full of envy that he was going and I couldn't afford to go. Uh, so he came back with all the gossip, you know, how British Academia is. And uh, I became even more interested in what exactly they do. I was very blessed in a sense because by accident I ended up being in a department that I had Ottoman law taught by Colin Imber and uh, Islamic law taught by, Colin, uh, by Calder, the late Calder. So there was great fun around and very many times of frustration, struggling with Arabic and with Ottoman and stuff like that. And then we had bliss in pubs discussing all kinds of imaginary questions in the form of fatawas. So um, it was only natural when I eventually got a job and I could afford to go to a conference, which would be in 98 or so, I went to the Granada one. Great choice, great choice, because it was an eye-opener for me. So the first time I became a member of the society, it was 1998, and the first conference I attended was the Granada Conference. Very well organized, super. And you also organized one in Ankara, haven't you? Yes, centuries later. I think it was in 2010 or so. A uh, very stressful thing to organize a conference, so I wish you luck. Um, we need it, thank you. Yeah, well, <laughs> it went it went well. You know, everybody seemed to be happy, and uh, I didn't realize a lot of things because I was coming in and out, making sure that everybody's food is going to be served on time, uh, which is difficult when you're organizing a conference. But all in all, you know, I thought it was uh, more or less uh, the scholarship that the Islamic Law and Society. Association, our association, the National Society of Islamic Legal Studies is uh, used to organize, which is high quality, and always trying up new things, which is what I expect from the London Conference too. I'm sure you are going to get there. Well, if you listen to the other Sharai episodes, you will notice that references to the Ankara Conference and how they enjoyed it are numerous. So you'll be pleased and uh, we'll take you up on, uh, you know, your challenge for the London Conference. <laughs> Gosh, it was a nightmare because I had I was promised money and then the guys that promised me money were removed from office and I couldn't. I mean, it was just four months before the conference and I couldn't I didn't know whether I had the money. And then I had to sort of blackmail people and get the money in order to organize it. So it was 
excellent source of uh, of having my blood pressure going up <laughs> constantly. <laughs> but I'm glad they enjoyed it. Well, don't jinx it. Budget is okay for oh, now. Good, good, good. Good, <laughs> good, 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 good. We're not going to go wild, don't worry. Although going wild is something that you find very often in the conferences of uh, the International Society of Islamic Legal Studies in every aspect. You know that the Arabist conferences are vicious. They used to be vicious because we were talking about terms that nobody would agree about. And I still remember a very renowned professor now who was a young lad at the time who was crying his head off after his presentation because two big names attacked him about the meaning of a word. So we, we had to forget that over a bottle of wine. But. So then we expect to hear the full story at the conference in London. God forbid, he would be embarrassed. Listen, um, Evgenia, what do you like to do in your free time? In my free time? I like walking. I like uh, being outside in the wild. I like walking under all weather. Something that I have been missing since my kids have grown up. And I have been, unfortunately, replacing my walking with free driving people around. But um, <laughs> hopefully I will go back to it, you know, so, sooner than later, you know. As long as I can walk again, by the time I start, I go back to it. Do you expect to go also with walking in London? I always do that. I remember I went out in the Harvard conference And I said, okay, I'm going to walk around and see Boston. This is the first time I came, uh, and it was just a couple of years after September 11. And then I walk around and I see all these signs. I have noticed all these signs in the hotel. I go to the toilet, it says, wash your hands everywhere, even on the door before you leave. Wash your hands. You have to wash your hands. And then when I started walking around Boston and, then I, and I saw this line saying, this is where you can trade drugs and then school and then the, this is the end of the place where you can trade drugs and something like that or the other way around. I said, my God. And in the evening we had drinks and stuff before uh, dinner and uh, one of our American colleagues asked me, what do I think about America? This is the first time I was in the States. And then I said, wow, I don't know whether you are fighting terrorism. You certainly fight against ambiguity. There is no ambiguity anywhere. You mentioned Colin Imber. In a volume dedicated to him, uh, you published a piece on the right to choose the Cadi court for the Mies. And uh, in the, from the 17th to the 19th century, I was wondering how you could situate this within your wider research interests. Actually, he has been nagging me because I, I kept telling him that, you know, in the Ottoman Empire, apart from the Cati courts that everybody has been working on, there are other kinds of courts. And then he said, prove it, prove it, prove it. And then I said, okay, fine, since I'm supposed to write a piece on him, for him, for, in his honor, I will sit down and uh, collect all the material I have about these other forums, not only the Cati court, where justice is served, good, medium, or badly, most of the time badly. And then a whole new series opened up, a new window, because it made me think about a number of issues that had been discussed in the field of legal anthropology, but the Ottoman studies were still very 
because we had certain norms and uh, stratification and uh, Ottoman courts and the Khadijastas and all that sort of business and blah, 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 blah. And of course, the Ottomans have not seen the material I had seen. So it made me think about all sorts of earlier things I have done, like this book I did with Robert Cleave on Islamic law, theory and practice, and whether that theory and practice is still an issue. Um, as I get older and wiser, I hope, I realize that um, all these uh, definitions we make about theory and practice and all that sort of thing is so far away from reality. So I decided to take it on the reverse. I decided to listen to all these people in my courts, whether that would be a court that is judging on the basis of Islamic law or it would be a court that is judging on canon law if it is a metropolitan court, or even on local custom, if it was a communal court. And listening to the voice of these people made things clearer, in a sense, because it allowed you to see the biggest picture. And the biggest picture, as far as the Ottoman Empire was concerned, is that serving justice means keeping up a balance, a balance between parties. And this balance could be achieved with all sorts of different legal methods, tools, and ways according to what people thought that it is justice for them. So I go along the same path, not that I have convinced very many people, because you see, the Ottomanists, uh, the historians, they love working on exceptions, and the lawyers, they love working on the rules. So I'm stuck in between trying to convince both sides, most probably unsuccessfully. But I will continue on this path because I think it is more fun than uh, imposing my own opinions and whatever else is, is modern or fashionable on my material. From your reference to voices, I am particularly interested in the language that these voices use. And in your piece, there's, uh, there's some references to in this complex set of jurisdictions also to some legal vocabulary from Italian. So I wonder if by placing in the Francochiotes into this discourse, you sort of like complicate things even more, but then you make it even more interesting. So the complexity is even more complex. Yeah, well, um, it's, you know, to answer your question, it's very funny. When they ask me what languages do you speak, then I start saying ancient Greek, medieval Greek, early modern Greek, and blah, blah, blah. And people say, are you mad? What are you talking about? But if you read any of these texts, you will figure out that the amount of loan words, especially on the, on the islands that have been under Latin domination, as the Greek historiography loves to talk about, or I would say Italian, um, and not domination. Uh, and very many Ottoman words, Turkish words, and this and that and the other, you have to be able to navigate uh, along many languages and concepts. One of the questions I have been asked is, well, why that sort of material doesn't exist in other parts of the Ottoman Empire, apart from trajectories, which would be wars, this, that, and the other? I think a very important element is legal memory. And the Italians, with their obsession with documents, good, excellent obsession with documents, has bestowed upon the people they have been living together this legal memory that makes the document a very important thing that you will have to cherish, keep, 
and reproduce so you can use it under all weather conditions and situations to prove your claims. And this is what gives us a glimpse of what in other places most probably was done orally because of other legal traditions. But the absence of the document in other places doesn't mean that these practices were not in place. It only means that they were in place in a different manner. Eugenia, you already mentioned something about that and I would like to go back to it because I think this is really a question that is relevant for the many of us who, work, who are a bit between history and um, legal studies and this challenge of and how to combine that and how with legal studies can we bring something to social history? Um, what kind of, um, of um, contribution we can give to it. So I would like to hear from you what strategies do you use and what contribution you think that we can give in this, uh, in this um, direction? Well, I think it's a difficult question to give a straight answer, to tell you the truth. It's a very difficult question, actually. I will tell you what, how I go about. I'm a strange per- person that I like working with people that are dead. So, and not think about what exactly my hobby, because I have, I have been blessed to have a hobby I can pay my credit card with. Um, what, what impact would have to anybody? Well, I get great pleasure by going through this and talking about this, and that is enough. However, recently, and that has to do with the age, I think, I started thinking as to what all these images of legal pluralism of some sort, of different legal forums, would do in today's society. And this is why I have been starting a new project, which borders to legal anthropology, and uh, it has to do with the application of Ottoman Islamic law today, as we speak, on Western Thrace, which is part of the only place that officially in the European Union, as Western Thrace is part of Greece, Islamic law still exists and is accepted as an official law system. So what I'm going to do is to go over and talk to the Muftis and look at the archives of the Muftis about the cases involving the Muslim community, the Muslim Turkish community. I don't want to get into trouble with any side and their interaction with both European law and uh, Greek law. And I would never have been able to look at it from a specific angle if I had not been working in the past, if I had not been doing more or less the same thing with people that are dead. And if you ask me why are you so interested in that, because the time has come. Sometimes the time just comes when you are supposed to be seeing things in a different way. And uh, I hope all will go well from the summer onwards. I will start my field trips and I perhaps would have more to tell you about in a different podcast for another conference of the International Society of Islamic Legal Studies. So I will be asking you then a question on language there as well, because the dimension of the survival of language and the communications with the Greek state for uh, Western Thrace Muslims, I think is one of the very interesting aspects uh, of the story. So we're very much looking forward to hearing uh, from you. Me too. I'm very interested to see how many long words back and forth they are in both the documents and the oral. Uh, communication with these people. 
Following up on Selena's question, in the Muslim world, you recently published a piece in which you sort of like look across uh, fate at a moment of reformation in the Ottoman Empire, in which there is very little law, but a lot of other fun stuff. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, that was another thing that, because you see, I am very bored in doing one thing. I'll have to do all sorts of different things at different times. At the time, there was all this discussion about Reformation and the XYZ years from Reformation and that sort of thing. And I happened to be reading about uh, Kyrillos Lukaris, who was being considered a Protestant Orthodox, Protestant Orthodox, Protestant, Protestant Orthodox, whatever. Patriarch, and um, when I get, I got into what he was doing at the time and what he was aiming at. I could see that the underlying of all this was renewal, tajdid, and I had seen the same thing when I was working with the Kadizadilis. I'm at the moment editing a very rare text, an oral discourse, a mejlis between one of the most important Kadzizadili uh, leaders with uh, the trans official translator of the port on science and religion. So all sorts of things we have been thinking about these people were, uh, were different when you were listening to them. And in, in a sense, although what I do seems so much different from each other, actually it is connected in one level, and this is a, a real, true, genuine effort to listen to what these people were talking about and how they were living. Beyond certain concepts that Islamic law is imposing on scripturalist legal books. So it was fashionable at some point to start any article on non-Muslims about the restrictions and what the fuck says about this and that and the other. And when I was using all these articles to teach, my students were asking me my own opinion. And I said, well, I'll ask you a question. Do you think that a Muslim peasant in the middle of Anatolia is more important than a non-Muslim rich, powerful translator the port? So what is the use of all this law and what is the use of all this Sierra and what is the use of all this stuff in actual fact is useful in time when you have conflict. And it doesn't make much sense in every other situation. This was how this article came about when I tried to see that it was the age that needed renewal and the renewal had different agendas for different groups in the empire. But the bottom line of all of this was a deep effort for the society to translate the changes they were going through in all sorts of different levels. Um, Eugenia, from our previous conversation, I know that you have a big, um, a big passion for one specific jurist whose name also comes out, uh, pops out in your email address. Can you tell us something more about him and what makes him so special? What makes Ebu Sud so special? Everybody has said that he was the greatest uh, jurist of the Ottoman Empire. He was the Sheikhul Islam, the Grand Mufti of one of the greatest sultans, which was Suleiman the Magnificent. 
or the lawgiver for others. But of course, uh, staying in power for 40 years allows people to, to, to do a lot of stuff. But Ebusud was actually uh, a person you can easily fall in love with because he was such a clever, clever man who could interpret, make kiyas, and use all sorts of other things you find in Usulul Fiqh in order to find a solution that works for everybody. So, for Ebu Sud, what is important is to find a solution that is to the benefit of, the, of most of the participants in the question. And this, uh, you can call it practicality, I call it cleverness. Um, my PhD was based on his solutions on the monastic and ecclesiastical waqf. If you consider what previous and jurists and those after him did about the issue, you realize that nobody would have masterly solved such a problem better than him. Uh, but of course, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that the Busud is less a good Muslim than any other Mufti. If you look into his other fetvas, you will realize that conservative as he might have been, he seemed to be quite focused on solving problems in particular between communities. This was his gift. And of course finding money for the state, which is another gift of his. Which what lawyers are supposed to do, in any case. So that's why 20, 30 years ago I got a Gmail that is named after him. <laughs> which is ridiculous now, but what can you do if no, I found it really nice. It really and it made me curious about him actually. So I started to read about him. Um, so let's move um, to teaching. Um, do you manage Eugenia to um, to fit um, or to introduce some of your um, current research in a course uh, outline? And if so, where do you do it? Well, uh, you know, from teaching in universities, that you are not always blessed. I'm blessed one semester a year to because I can teach Islamic and Ottoman law with examples and like that, and I have another course on custom, which is great fun. How do I... Teaching Islamic and Ottoman law in Turkey is equally very nice, because you have so many different fractions and colors and different interpretations and understandings of what Islam is, because Islam, as you, we all know, is a religion of freedom. So people can choose whatever they like, and all this is represented sometimes in my class. And when we're talking about certain issues that are a bit controversial, it's even more fun. I tried to do, once I tried while teaching to do Moodle, and then I realized it's not a good idea. It's uh, much easier when you have a fight to see the person in front of you than simply writing against somebody. So <laughs> that's um, another thing that makes uh, makes teaching uh, Islamic and Ottoman law in Turkey fun. Another aspect uh, has to do with Ottoman law because uh, there is all this misconception that uh, Ottoman law was secular law and all that sort of business. This is a point of departure with my dear, dear professor and supervisor, Colin Imber. I don't think that Kanun is secular law. On the contrary. But 
since uh, many people, because Ottoman historians have written extensively along those lines, are describing Kanun as a secular law, I have great fun uh, proving them wrong, which is again something that keeps my mind working and change the syllabus according to who I have in front of me. A small recipe to avoid boredom when you teach the same class over and over again. I'm sure some of our listeners would love to uh, ask you more about this at the 10th Islamic Legal Studies Conference in London, so we all look forward to seeing you there. Thank you, Evgenia. Thank you for your patience. And uh, we are expecting everybody in London. It's going to be a smashing conference. I'm certain about that. And I'm looking forward to see you all in person after all these difficult times we have been going through. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Evgenia. Yeah.